You are listening to the Academy Revival Podcast. This is Drew, resident of the Montevilla neighborhood and huge fan of the Academy Theater, here with the person spearheading the Portland, the Revival series. I don't know why I said Portland at the Academy Theater. Doorman, what's up? Hey there. Uh, I am Doorman, (laughs) employee of the Academy Theater, and... I'm here to do a June program review where we're going to talk about The Terminator, 1984, and additionally, The Switchblade Sisters from 1975. So we played these two movies back in June and before we even decided to do this podcast. And then when we met and talked about the podcast, we had been conversing about them and it was immediately apparent that we wanted to have a full discussion about certain films. We had both watched Terminator at the Academy and I had recently watched Switchblade Sisters. So um, Drew agreed to watch that one and now we're here to give our reviews. Yeah, we're traveling back in time to June to save the future of humanity. In the 21st century, a weapon will be invented like no other. This weapon will be powerful, versatile, and indestructible. It can't be reasoned with. It can't be bargained with. It will feel no pity, no remorse, no pain, no fear. It will have only one purpose, to return to the present and prevent the future. This weapon will be called the Terminator. You're dead, honey. All right, let's start with the Terminator, 1984. All right. So, Drew, what was your gut reaction? Um, well, first, I was born in 1984. No, that's, <laughs> that's irrelevant. Um, but my gut reaction to this viewing was particularly, yeah. one, um, I saw it with my girlfriend, Jamie, mm. and it was her first time. Mm. So... We do like a weekly movie swap where we pick a movie for the other person to to see. And she ever so generously actually picked Terminator as her Uh movie pick for the week. And so we went to see it. There was probably, you know, there was a number, um, a couple other big groups of people in the theater. So like great crowd reactions. I was like, you know, watching her react to the movie for the first time. Not a big... Which showtime did you see? This was like um, probably like a four thirty. Ah, uh, okay. Okay, so early-ish, and yeah. you know, like probably not peak ruckusness at the theater, but sure, just the right amount of like you know crowd response, and um, it was a really rewarding experience. I've always loved this movie because I'm a big fan of uh, slasher movies. Oh yeah, and this movie is much more much closer to the slasher template than like an action movie. Template. And it's really not talked about that connection that yeah. much. It's very apparent. I feel like it's it's not like a crazy analysis. He's an unstoppable that, killing machine that just keeps getting back up and slowly like uh, plodding along till he, he will <laughs> never stop yeah. until you are dead. <laughs> yeah. And that is literally just like, you know, John Carpenter's Halloween. I mean, it's really exactly. yeah, it's really a yeah, retelling. Yeah. And I mean, that I was going to save this point for later, but it's relevant now, which is, you know, 1984. It's this point in the slasher narrative where we've had slashers come out for years and years and years. And Nightmare on Elm Street comes out yep. in 1984, shakes up the whole thing, you know, puts new energy and lifeblood into it. But really, it kind of marks an ending point and a sort of change in cinema and specifically horror cinema to a different type of horror, you know. Um, and the mid and late 80s just feels very different cinematically. And it's interesting because these 1984 movies, they're filmed in 1983. So they have this kind of still part, they're still part of that earlier world. Right. Um, and Terminator really just feels like the other side of the coin, the sci-fi side of the coin that Nightmare on Elm Street has for 1984. Yeah. And it's, I mean, obviously we know what Cameron would go on to do now. He was always, you know, so interested in, in pushing the boundaries of, of, filmmaking technology and storytelling well i he wasn't really his stories aren't usually that sophisticated but i feel like 
because this is so early in his career, he has less resources at his disposal. He's not, you know, spending 20 years making uh, an Avatar movie. Like, you get the best of his talent on display from, like, the way the explosions are choreographed and, and filmed and the shootouts are done going into... What's the... um. What's the uh, punk bar that she hides out in oh, called? Man. Oh, I forget the name, <laughs> yeah. but it's awesome. That's yeah. such a great, iconic scene. Yeah. Um, just the way that whole thing, that whole sequence is shot. Like, just this sense of dread of, yeah, being on the run. But also, um, the connection between, like, her and her, her roommate and just, like, their banter. There was just a lot of... Um, character development that I'd forgotten about, you know, that, that does give you just enough of a hook to, to be genuinely like worried and concerned for, um, for Sarah Connor's Connor's character and, and, you know, just bought into this, this kind of crazy premise from the start. I just looked it up. It's called tech noir. Yep. Which is great. <laughs> That's such a great title. Um, so my gut reaction, I mean, I saw it at the seven o'clock Saturday night showtime. It was packed and, uh, it's a classic. It, to me, it just, it, it beat for beat works and it holds up every single time I watch it. It's undeniable the force of the movie and it's, it's, it's a little bit uh, unnerving for me watching this because there are beats that to me have become cliches Come with me if you want to live. This this line shouldn't work. We've all known this line. But everybody in the movie theater was into it. Right. Nobody was rolling their eyes. Everyone was really engaged in a surprising way for me. I, I was and that pulled me in and we were all down to watch this movie. It kinda kind of reminded me I've peeked into some of our Harry Potter marathon screenings, and the crowd is so darn engaged yeah you could hear a pin drop and they're just all so down with the movie it was the same vibe in terminator there's no irony or yeah like mocking or or you know like when when the theme when the title theme is playing it's dead quiet everyone's listening they want to hear it through those speakers yeah you know that Um, got me giddy yeah just i mean because the the title theme music is so iconic and seeing it in the theater every it's a it's a dark room and i definitely hadn't seen it in a in a theater before and like i said it was watching it um kind of through the eyes of someone who hadn't seen it before period and uh, isn't even a horror fan or you know a fan necessarily of these types of movies and that's the perfect way to experience something that you that might be less approachable for you i feel like is to have the comfort and the security or the like uh, enthusiasm of yep. a crowd. Like you're, if I was going to um, dive into the Harry Potter universe, I would want to go headfirst into that like screening environment yeah. respectfully, know my place um, <laughs> and, and like feed off their enthusiasm. Yeah. And so uh, it's such a classic that I don't watch it every year. You yep. know, it's kind of like Halloween or Suspiria for me or these movies that I try to savor. And if I'm going to do it, you know, and I knew this was going to be a 4k DCP. And I mean, this, the production design looked better than I had ever seen it. So visually it was just five stars all across the board, you know, and I love all of the flashback scenes so much of the dystopian world. It's so Cameron, you know, it really feels like uh, aliens, you know, yep. um, and I'm excited to watch that at the Hollywood theater um, tomorrow night. So that'd be interesting. Just watch having watched Terminator. I also watched uh, King Kong lives recently. Oh. And huh. Ooh, that one did not hold up nearly as much as Lyndall Hamilton. I really want to watch, um, uh, Children of the Corn again. I've uh, seen that sort of recently, yeah. and it holds up quite a bit. Yeah, that yeah, might be eighty four. I think that's eighty four as well. It's the same year yeah. as Terminator, which is and nuts. Gremlins. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a childhood favorite of mine. Yeah, so you know, it really feels like a debut. I mean, it's not Cameron's debut, but he's giving it that all. You can just feel it through the movie that he is pulling out all the stops in a in a debut-esque kind of way. Yeah, with um, the resources that he has yeah. and, you know, working what might have been a frustrating experience or, you know, not the easiest experience, um, working with an un, 
polished actor or like a stiff performer like yeah. Arnold at the time. I right. mean, this was a really interesting turn for him going from the likable, like, or playing a hero. The barbarian. And, yeah, yeah. Yeah. To playing, um, a cold, you know, like cold cyborg killer. And he was kind of notoriously at the time, not great at, at, line deli- not great at memorizing lines or delivering them and this has been always my view on the film uh-huh. that, um i want to throw at you to see what you think which is that michael bean steals the show he brings this tenacity 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 yep. <laughs> to the movie that is it's one of the best performances of the 80s i mean so many good lines. Uh, some some of the lines I just wrote down. Cyborgs don't feel pain. <laughs> I do. Um, and then, uh, you know, Linda Hamilton asks, you know, so what are the women in your time like? And he just goes, good fighters. <laughs> yeah. And, oh, God. Just his energy is just, it really sucks the viewer in. And I, again, I'm always bringing it back to the cast where this could have been a really good movie. But if it, it didn't have Michael Bean, I don't know if it could have been this unstoppable classic that right. really, you know, I, and, but I, I mean, hats off to Linda Hamilton too. She does a great job at playing the average person. I mean, it really does make you feel like I'm just a waitress. I'm just trying to get through and it's just a nightmare day, Yep. you know, and yeah, she's just on her Honda elite scooter yeah. going to the movies. I would lo- have loved to see which movie she was going to go see, but we don't get to find out right. before this happens. Totally. That's a great point. I never <laughs> thought about that, but it's, you know, one thing that really stuck out to me in this screening was Linda Hamilton's hair. Oh yeah. <laughs> so it's it's big. It's big, but to me it was it was symbolic of her character in a way that I didn't realize before where she's teasing it up, right? In a big 80s way, but it's 1984. It, it's not annoying. You know, if this was 1987 and she would do it, it would be bigger. Right. It would be, be crazier and stuff. Rock. This is just 19, you know, it's filmed in 1983. You know, everyone's in LA, they're all listening to synth pop new wave stuff, and it, she's just trying to fit in. Yep. She's just trying to be normal. She's just trying. She's not being. She just wants. You know. She just wants to be a, a blend in. Just be normal. She's not trying to be crazy or anything. So her hair is really. It's 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 of the time, but it it really kind of shows her like n- trying to just be a normal person. Yep. Um, and I, consequently, that just makes everything that happens to her so cinematic. And and that was what was really striking. In addition, was just how it really reminded me of the matrix when I watched it recently, which, which is just, it was just unrelentingly cinematic. All these scenes were just, just, uh, taking a location and exploding it, you know, yeah. or chase a, or, yeah. yeah, I mean, and it's just like, you're in a, you're in a police station. Well, there's a guy coming in and it's all over, <laughs> yeah. you know, and it's just, it's just a nightmare that you're trapped in. Yeah, don't worry. We have 27 cops here. Well, that's, uh, that's not going <laughs> to do anything. And yeah. I love the cops. Yeah. Okay. Lance Hendrickson. Yep. And I didn't know his name until the screening, but I made sure to mention Paul Winfield as the Lieutenant. Who's always smoking. And, Ed yeah. Traxler. Yeah. yeah. He's like, there's got to be a point to this. What are you telling me all this? And yeah. stuff. Uh, really good line that he has that I wrote down is, they're going to call him the damn phone book killer. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. When he's doing this, at first he doesn't want to do a press conference, but then he kind of like leans into it. Yep. And yeah, that's the other thing. Aside from um, the psychiatrist, like the criminal psychologist that they bring in, yeah. who who pops back up in the second movie, uh, he like he's hilarious. He he's like one of the only kind of like just unlikable, unsympathetic oh, yeah. characters. But the cops are like just trying their best for the most part. They're like a little, yeah. you know, uh, tired or like you know run ragged from their day to day. But like that guy is is sort of making fun of her when yeah. or making you know fun of Michael Bean when he's telling the story. Absolutely. And yeah. he just like one of the other things that struck me this viewing was how kind of random and and unceremonious it is when um the terminator will who he lets live versus who he kills like he lets that guy just walk out of the police station even though we've like as an audience we're kind of expecting him 
to get it because he was he yeah, he was rude to yeah. the characters we like. But the Terminator doesn't give a shit about that. And then later, like he throws the one guy out of the truck and just like doesn't have time to kill him. That's like not his agenda at the moment. So it's just uh, all these little signs of how like cold and calculating his you know programming makes him which makes it all the more scary yep like yep um Um, have have you ever noticed this is something that every time just sticks out to me that michael bean is wearing these hobo pants the entire time (laughs) (laughs) well i it just sticks out to me it's like oh my god he's going through all of this and those random hobo pants like he's not even wearing underwear under there it's just him on the pants yeah i i I can't visually necessarily picture the pants his pants but he does yeah like both him and arnold of course arrive to the film um stark naked and arnold is this big hulking you know a bodybuilder right literally and uh michael bean is ripped but like a slim a slim dude and they have to get clothes from the first people they encounter so there's humor in the movie too because yeah. arnold encounters these street punks bill paxton of course among them a couple cans short of a yeah. six bag <laughs> and like what i loved about arnold's ensemble was that he doesn't just take like the leather um kind of like um streetwear from the the punks he takes the glove he he wears the gloves too he didn't have to use the gloves like (laughs) but that was a nice bit of accessorizing and again because it's 1984 for me personally like if it was 1987 or it just those moments wouldn't feel as authentic to me it just it would have been more over the top more jokey it just the vibe is filmed in 1983 it still has that 83-ness to me and it just feels a little bit more authentic specifically that scene you know and just i love the um the makeup he has over his face that's the um tire that's run him over that's such a great um just uh 80s punk uh makeup thing it's awesome yeah i i um that part is super memorable and it's just i i don't know like there's no wasted time in this in the in the movie it's so propulsive and so um relentless <laughs> just yeah. like him like the movie feels like you're being stalked by the terminator just in its pacing and, and editing and it's yeah. almost like overwhelming if at times if it was any longer it would be hard to to take because you don't get a lot of moments you get the moment in the hotel the love scene of course which is crucial to the plot and i that (laughs) has always been a a really memorable scene for me i think it really sticks out as opposed to other you know like the hand shot the squeezing i mean it's just a really iconic shot but I, I, I just really i think always really liked for some reason i just think it's a great little moment the buildup to that, the lovemaking, you know, it's uh, Michael Bean's being really broody, you know, he's talking to her and stuff. And then he says this line that just, and I just, again, in like another situation just might be really cheesy. I came across time for you, Sarah. (laughs) It's just an awesome line. And he delivers it so well. It's just great. And it really sucks you in. And then you're like, Whoa, where's this going? And then he just goes over and he starts, I shouldn't have said that. And he starts packing his grenades or those little bombs that they make together. And it just turns and it just escalates so quickly from that. It's just such a unique, I I don't know. It it, it really always throws me off after the unrelenting pace of everything else, just how quickly it turns into that. And that with the way Michael Bean handles that dialogue, uh, it just really, just really effective. It could have been really um, ham-fisted or yeah. handled poorly because they they do have to go from like such a extreme dangerous situation into some kind of plausible love scene. Yeah, and it's filmed like borderline and and sort of like a Top Gun style, but yeah. but without going into full kind of like the stylized. Song. Yeah, yeah, There's exactly. No song it, and, and that- I. I was worried. I kind of remembered in my head that 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 scene felt like forced or like uh, came out of nowhere. But rewatching it, it didn't feel that way at all. It, it did feel like really earned because she's being like she's they had that whole like conversation under the bridge. Like she seems genuinely 
interested in him and they're really forming in in you know the course of uh, not very many hours like a genuine bond and then we know the future is kind of dependent on the actions of of that night in the hotel so there is this sort of paradox of you know what uh, how time travel works but this last rewatch i was totally bought in on on their you know brief but but impactful love affair I wanted to share one <laughs> personal anecdote because it's so yeah. memorable. Um, I, I saw this movie, like I said, I was born in 1984, so nice. that would have probably always been like, have a special connection to your, yeah, your birthday years. Exactly. So I, it probably would have been years and years. Actually, I know however long it took for this movie to arrive on cable is how I watched it for the right. first time. So we were watching it as a family on, you know, um, on cable. And mm-hmm. then, uh, thunderstorm hit our neighborhood took out the power and my parents pulled out like one of those old portable tvs that's like four inches <laughs> and is battery powered with an antenna nice. and we watched the rest of it on like the tiniest black and white like yeah. i always think i have like this this like um filter in my head when i watch it that almost that it's like a black and white movie because yeah. that was such an impressionable viewing like i was so locked in on like you know um, the tiniest screen yeah. during this uh, this like crazy thunderstorm as a kid. I mean, I think it made me love thunderstorms and <laughs> this movie more um, uh, because of that. So I just wanted to share that. Yeah, that's quite a first experience. <laughs> yeah. It's very memorable. Yeah, yeah, man. The unrelenting pace. I just got to bring up the Matrix again. It yeah. Really, you know, we watched we played the Matrix. I think it was in March. Interesting. Um, I watched the re- Reloaded around then for its anniversary. Gotcha. But and not, not as good. It really struck out to me just the quickness of the movie development and also just the similarity plot wise of just we're dealing with the dystopia, but, uh, you know, 80 percent or what uh, of the movie is not in the dystopia. We have a lot of just normal life present um, depicting the plot, yeah. uh, representing the plot. Um, and so it, is, it just felt like the Matrix was trying to out adrenaline the the terminator but it, it didn't really feel like a modern born supremacy-esque editing you know rapid fire it just uh it was really the plot points that are driving it towards this um you know action frenzy um oh and the the other thing i wanted to ask you and, and say is um i almost feel like now people now t2 has overshadowed terminator right. because of the the new villain you know with the liquid metal effects and there's definitely aspects of t2 which i watched you know right after this that that are more impressive or just more impressive you know visually um with with cameron having more resources at his disposal and with arnold you know with the flip of the of the characters but I don't know. Do you have a strong preference between the two? Do you even do you even look at it like 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 that? That you prefer one over the other? Yeah, I mean, I think I prefer Terminator because of Michael Bean. Okay. Uh, there's no Michael Bean in Terminator Two, but the aqueduct scenes in Terminator Two super memorable. Right. I love that chase scene. You know, um, it, 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 the whole thing is is really um, you know. It feels like the bigger ver- budget version yeah. of Terminator, and it is. Um, and it, that I always kind of prefer the original, and and the, ha- the original just has, like I said, that, that debut energy. Even though it isn't his debut, it just it has the debut energy. But the other real edge, I feel like Terminator One has over Terminator Two, is the score. Mm. Brad Fidel, he just he he just has a really interesting uh, score that. You know, it's it's very much coming off the Vangelis uh, Blade Runner uh, ambient uh, vibe, but it has much more substance and memorable and catchy uh, than that is. I greatly prefer it to the Blade Runner score, um, but uh, it, it, it's also something just different and moody and um, emotional. Um, and I feel like that kind of melancholy. I think I'm uh, I'm getting from the score. I don't have that melancholy as much, you know, uh, but I mean, the title scene in Terminator 2 sure. is pretty, is pretty memorable and the flames yeah, and the stuff. playground being, yeah, uh, the playground, that's desecrated. a very evocative yeah. visual image, yeah. but the auditory 
you know, it, you know. Aside from the theme, yeah, you yeah. still get that fix of the the theme, but but yeah. yeah, I actually now that you mentioned that, the rest of the the score is is more unremarkable for sure. And they reuse the theme in Terminator Two, right? Yeah, yeah. that's so what I mean. You, you still get it. You still get that, it's just but not fresh and yeah. it doesn't have the same melancholy uh, texture. Right. You know, it it really is. But I mean, public. I just, Public enemy, uh, the, the public enemy shirts are in Terminator Two. Sure. There's a lot. There's a lot yeah. of cultural cool stuff. I mean, his friend's hairdo is pretty. Amazing. I mean, it's a full the jean jacket. Yeah, a full seven years later, I think it's ninety one. Yeah. So I mean, a lot of time had passed, and I, I just wanted to ask that because, like I said, I feel like there might be people or you know opportunities to more opportunities to see t2 than to go back to the original terminator and and uh well, <laughs> definitely go back all the way if if you're looking to restart the franchise we might i won't I won't give too much away but edward furlong might make another appearance in this show in the near future okay. i'm not gonna okay. yeah do that but we might be able to really hammer out some of these points all right so that's all i'm gonna say but okay. um edward furlong he really does elevate the movie and he's super iconic and I, you know, I, I love what he brings, but Michael Bean, I mean, yeah. to me, it's just, that's a performance of the deck. I mean, it's, it's really, really amazing. He's a human too. I meant to point this out earlier. Um, yeah. In T2, you get, you know, Sarah Connor is, is now like a full on trained, you know, badass, but, <laughs> so badass. but it's Arnold it's one terminator versus an older model terminator versus a newer model terminator and t1 the person who's sent back is a normal person that is completely killable and so just the actual like like the line you quoted earlier i mean he actually feels pain whereas in the second terminator arnold is impervious to you know a lot of the human emotions he basically that movie is all kind of about humanizing him exactly so, yeah totally yeah. anyway um we had to cover t2 because they are you know kind of inseparable to some to, it's a continuation of the story yep so that um brings us to so when terminator the first one terminator 1984 came out uh it was orion the late the distrib the distribution company didn't have a lot of faith in it and it didn't release it in a wide release so it only played selectively in probably the major cities um, but it did great in those that initial run um, and consequently immediately had a VHS and a laser disc um, and um, those I imagine must have sold like hotcakes or been rented like hotcakes at many video stores um, and it's been just widely circulated you know it's a it's a pretty widely circulated movie up until recently um huh. and in the 90s in 1991 right when terminator 2 came out um they had a re-release on laserdisc um and i've watched that one and the original and that one is hands down before i watched this 4k dcp that's that was the best looking and sounding um terminator that I, you know it blew my old vhs out of the way so that that's the 1991 letterboxed laserdisc wow um and then it's gotten just pretty mediocre releases since then i think there's a special edition dvd but that was it's very old it doesn't have a 4k uhd release cameron's um, a little uh, picky about yeah, what, <laughs> what it, happens it, to it, his movies yeah but i mean it really needs like a vinegar syndrome-esque uh you know big uh thorough uh, box physical media release. And I think it would really benefit um, just the newer, because I was surprised when we booked it that a lot of my younger coworkers hadn't seen it. Um, and had they seen T2? I to think that was more point? on yeah. their radar. Yeah. And it, it, um, and so I, but to me, I had just always grown up with this and this VHS was just everywhere, you know? So uh, I was just surprised, but I think that um, now just looking at that history of the physical media, it, it seems like, yeah, the, the, the later releases just aren't as appealing. And so right now I'm just, I'm holding on to my laser disc and I would, I would gladly get uh, some sort of uh, 4k new, new uh, special edition thing um, you know put out by a label but we'll see what happens yeah with M <laughs> mgm has now got the rights and yeah we'll see what happens with their stuff cool um uh yeah and if anyone that can't um scrounge up a laser disc player in addition to the laser disc uh, uh it is streaming on uh, max so there's an option to watch it there but yeah you wanted to talk about the the 
any other box office reception or, or things like that? Just that if anybody has out there listening and can reissue the yeah. score on vinyl, I mean, it's gotten, it's it, the original is really expensive and it's gotten repressed once, um, but that is now getting expensive and it's just such a beautiful score that it really needs to be made more accessible as well. So, all right. All right. Wow. Okay. That was a great movie to start with. Uh, what's next? So next we have our second movie we're going to discuss, which is 1975's The Switchblade Sisters. All right, so let's start with our gut reactions again. Drew, you want to? You watch this at home, right? Yes. Yeah. So, so I do yeah. want to preface the conversation with not having the benefit of a crowd reacting, not having, um, not even watching it with anyone else. <laughs> and uh, you had never seen this. Before. And I had never seen it. Yeah. So definitely seen a lot of films that this inspired, um, this kind of exploitation mashup of all different varieties of exploitation film. Um, what about any other Jack Hill movies like coffee? No. So oh, it's probably your a, first Jack a Hill. big, a big blind spot. And uh, my gut reaction just to answer succinctly yeah. was a, like at times like giddy and entertained and at other times bored. Um, oh, wow. So, I mean, you know, and I know that's like kind of, I, I have to think like, there's a lot of campy movies that I that I like, and you know, yeah. there's different flavors of of campiness. Um, but there was just not a lot for me to latch on to with kind of the overarching um, tone of the movie. I guess it, it it it's it's kind of like cheesy for for lack of a better word. Mm. But there are moments of like a very serious subject matter, very like. Uh, incredible performances like there's shootouts there's the scene at the very end of the movie which is like um completely mind-blowing or completely like an image that that you can't that you can't forget of the of her like screaming with her her face covered in blood as the cops take her away we'll be back yeah exactly and then that just like close up so i mean there's there's a lot I liked here. I just didn't all come together as as a cohesive experience for me. I probably needed like the energy of a group or like some kind of charged viewing to to pull it, fill in those gaps when I yeah that that those lulls that I experienced yeah. personally. So I would, but I, I I'm really excited. I didn't want to you know. Yeah. Um, start up negatively on you know one of our first podcasts of the movie that you <laughs> selected. No, no, it's, it's your <laughs> um, gut reaction. So that's I'm really, what it's all about. I'm really open to hearing your like reaction to what makes you so what made you so excited to show it and what it was like to see it with an audience because that might give me a new perspective on it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, my gut reaction is a little different, obviously. <laughs> um, and obviously I'll qualify that I picked this movie to show to people and I did it because I'm a big supporter and uh, Jack Hill is one of my favorite directors and I think this might be his best movie. So to me, this is a 70s classic that should be up there with the Warriors and for some reason, it's just not yet. But I see it has lots of legs to get there. Um, But basically, um, I don't want to just, but in terms of like, Boredom, like I was just very engaged with the whole gang. So one of the reasons I really like it is just I love Lace as a character. And I think she's just a great gang leader. Um, and just from the beginning, we see her waking up and has that great intro scene of them in the, you know, graffitied out apartment building. Um, 
and uh, they're going into the elevator and they one right. by one go onto the elevator and they you know that this gang is going to get this guy and they cut off his tie and stuff. I was um, to- totally in, yeah. Yeah, through, and the great that. song, Black Heart of Woman. You know, I just, I, I, I love all that intro. And then it, the first scene is the burger scene. Yep. And that was when it really, you know, seeing it in a crowd. So I'd seen this movie several times. Um, but this was the first time ever seeing it in a crowd. And this was a, a really interesting experience because um, you know, people weren't really sure what to expect with this movie. They, they kind of think it might be a campy, funny movie. And there's definitely fun involved in this movie. But Lace, in that very first burger scene, she goes and she ridicules Donut who was clearly a fan favorite and it was really fun to watch Donut get some love from mm. the audience because yeah. she's a hilarious character. Yeah. Um, but she forces, you know, quickly we're like, whoa, what's going on? And the audience just didn't understand what was going on. So it was just a vileness that came from Lace um, that really showed, you know, she was just trying to be dominant in the in the face of the gang, um, what yep. was going on. Uh, I, I, I do want to say yeah. real quick, just because... What you what did surprise me in a really pleasant way about the movie was it sort of sets her up as like there's this inspector dude or something that shows up at a at a woman's apartment and he's basically like he's a repo sque- man yeah squeezing her for money and so when her and her girl gang like confront this like greasy dude in the elevator you kind of get this feeling that like they're gonna just be out to like. Um, uh, take down like bad guys and like you know stick up for for yeah. these these like you yeah. know helpless people and then what you're describing in the in the burger scene is like it's almost much more like progressive and equal uh, um, equaled in his portrayal like of this gang like they're way more like sophisticated and and like interesting than the male counterpart gang so i did like all i did like that kind of shift that you're describing in where she was like not a hero yeah Um, in two scenes we just get way more dimensions to her character that are in 90 percent of exploitation movies but i mean i and i say that as an exploitation fan you don't always need to have multifaceted characters to have a good time but the th- reason that keeps this movie keeps me engaged is just the dynamics of the gang. Um, you know, we have Team Maggie on one side and Team Lace on the other side. And just the drama that ensues to me just really hooks me in. Um, and it, Patch is on there. And so the whole plot, and this is one lens to look at this movie, is based on Othello by Shakespeare. And I was like, oh, with this podcast, am I am I gonna just uh, do the Othello reading on this one? And I decided <laughs> this is this one that might be the next time I watch it. I'm gonna go hard into the Shakespearean adaptation, uh-huh. but it's just you have that Shakespearean drama kind of at the core, yeah. and that's what really hooked me and got me engaged in it. And I really want to know what's going on with Patch and why she's trying to manipulate the whole situation and their relationship to the the guy gang led by Dom, who is kind of super one-dimensional, hulking, uh, sort of dumb guy. Right. Um, and then, then they bring in crabs, and I just love... Uh, and when yeah. they bring in crabs to me, the whole <laughs> thing gets elevated, and he's just such a hilarious satire on politicians. Right. And so there's just many different levels that the movie operates on yeah, one of my um, notes on my phone is crab's hair i don't need to look at it <laughs> it's just a hilarious like bowl cut mullet basically um yeah but yeah. the real thing that everybody raves about this movie and um you know it's quentin tarantino's sort of championing is the dialogue and that's kind of what it's known as being um is just having just such great quippy dialogue that's kind of like raymond chandler as this film noir type quippy and stuff and i just you know all of the lines that just kept and the audience was just going nuts when you know i saw it again at at, uh, the seven o'clock show and it was just really fun to watch it with an audience and they were laughing and they were appalled and they were having just uh you know a really entertaining time you know um one of my favorite gangs (laughs) i don't know anything about gangs (laughs) you know so lace to me is just uh she's she's the best character and and uh without her but i I know a lot of people who really prefer maggie and patch 
donut, you know. So those, I just think it's a great gang, just like I like the gang and Warriors and stuff. But they, you know, in the Warriors, I just don't know all the names of, you know, I couldn't list you four different Warriors. But, um, I mean, yeah. Maggie's introduction at that at that um, hamburger shop is incredible as well. They, yeah. She's just like minding her own business, and and they start harassing her, and then and then she like whips one of them to the ground. And I noticed that, yeah, in this time I really noticed that it's her belt that she has. She has mm. a belt that she turns into a whip. Yeah, which is really cool. <laughs> and they see it, her just walking with it afterwards and stuff. So uh, what? Well, I was curious too, like. What were her motives? Like, did she just randomly get caught up in this situation and then, and then, you know, kind of this unlikely gang leader? Or did she have any more interest in kind of like slowly undermining um, Lace's power? I don't think that we can get a clear read yeah. on, on Maggie. And I think that's part of the interesting part yeah. of their character. And we're left to wonder. But this viewing, I wasn't going to go with the Othello lens. So if that, I think that hopefully that answers the question of like the major components that I find appealing about oh, yeah. the movie is just the cast, the dialogue and the Shakespearean drama that kind of hooks you in. And then the addition of crabs, which is just, I feel like icing on the cake and didn't even necessarily need it, but I think it really helps glue me in through that second act, you know, right. where I think a lot of films kind of fall flat that second act, but yeah, it starts off super strong with those first couple scenes, and then it really elevates it. The roller rink scene, you know, it's just it has- I, there's also the turning. Yeah, that's maybe the turning point um, where all of a sudden a lot of people are dying. Like there's yep. like yeah. <laughs> there's scenes of violence, and then there are people with semi-automatic <laughs> weapons just right. mowing, getting mowed down, and you're like, holy shit, okay, yeah, this is. Um, and then there's like just street warfare by the end right. of the movie. So it does exist sort of in this kind of Warriors-esque, um, not dystopia, but like detached, you know, um, uh, version of society where you don't really know, like the cops are aware of the gangs. They just take them in, but because they're juveniles, they can't really keep them. Um, so it's just kind of this, this um, pretty like... Um, awful societal structure that, that they're wrapped up in making the most of, I guess. Yeah. Everything in the world is bad. Is, is corrupt. Is, is, corrupt yeah. is, is, is bad in a, in the most fun, charming way possible. And, and I, that's what I just love about um, Jack Hill specifically um, is that he's able to operate in these kind of low brow genre movies and do these complex uh, highbrow art piece statements within them. So it's just a lot of depth in his movies and he operates on this, in this genre world um, that I just find to be really compelling. Uh, but just back to Maggie circling yes. back. Um, so this watch, what really stuck out to me was that lace was just constantly uh, pining for the traditional family. You know, she really, in my mind, mm -hmm. in my interpretation, became a symbol of the, uh, like, domestic, traditional uh, uh, type of life that someone could lead. And Maggie was just the flaming, liberated 70s woman who was not going to be anybody's Debs. You know, she was that, and she was getting everybody on her side. And at the end, you know, we're going to do spoilers this time, but she kills Lace, yeah. you know? And I think, like, that's a symbolic a knife fight. fight. Yeah. And I think it really s stuck to me. And, and so that, to me, that's just... Uh, to me, that's just really riveting to watch is just the symbolism play out like that over the course of the movie and to really have my own interpretation flower is kind of before my eyes. Um, that's just really, I don't get that experience a lot in movies. But in addition to that, I've now seen a lot more Jack Hill movies. And let me just give a little history. Yeah. So, um, Jack Hill works with Roger Corman. Uh, he's a protege uh, with Francis Ford Coppola. You know, he's of that generation. Um, and then he basically starts working for AIP and making movies. And he makes such a big hit eventually. You know, he makes a couple good hits. Um, and then eventually Coffee comes out. It's such a smash. And if you haven't seen that one, it's the same I think it's the same thing where it operates in this black exploitation genre, but it's doing a lot of work underneath it. Um, and it's really just to me fascinating and deeply cool movie. Um, but that was such a hit 
that he basically got enough leeway and power to start his own thing, Centaur releasing, which is what did Switchblade Sisters. Um, but in between Coffee, there's the sequel, um, Foxy Brown, and then he makes his first Centaur releasing picture, which is the Swinging Cheerleaders. And to me, that movie... That was that movie was extremely successful, and it deals with a lot of similar themes, um, but more set in like the high school setting where this college, one... and it's oh, much okay. more explicitly about um, uh, exploited exploitation of femininity and uh, uh, feminine liberation and stuff. That's that's what the movie is explicitly about. You don't have like Switchblade Sisters where that's subtext right um but that movie was very successful and operated as a a exploitation movie too that just made a bunch of money and so with that he was able to do switchblade sisters and i see that as kind of the next evolution and switchblade sisters did not do well um and a lot of people attribute it to the fact that it got an r rating because there were drugs involved but they're really almost almost a a hint of nudity yeah, but there's it really was they were really trying to get a PG rating yeah. and were anticipating that <laughs> and they just had this um what's a uh, small little bit with drugs that just immediately got them an R rating and then so people showed up to us expecting an R rated movie with R rated things and they didn't get it. And so people weren't there wasn't a buzz that generated because of that. Um interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I and, mean actually a PG exploit I don't know the history of all the subgenres of exploitation um as much as you but trying to make one that's like pg just that sounds like a lost um i mean it sounds like they were actually pretty close to being successful here because yeah the the violence isn't over the top really right uh, or gory and there's yeah uh, surprise like for a, a, a women's prison scene yeah, the the lack of nudity is almost uh, surprising just that they yeah, didn't go and, there and the handling of many t- uh, sensitive subjects was re- is really tactfully done yeah. in a way that takes years and years of experience with movie making to do so i just think that there's a lot of jack hills just pure craftsmanship going down um and you can compare this to you know so many other movies in the 70s but the warriors is one you know walter hill that really comes to mind and i watched that pretty recently too and man i just thought swishblade sisters just packed way more of a punch than warriors did especially in that second act and i think maybe that's where maybe you were having trouble so do you want to talk a little bit more about where you know because it sounds like maybe you were in at the burger oh yeah yeah. I, I think it is, I mean, as fun of a character as Crabs is, and then yeah. is, is like, um, th- so I know it's Crabs, huh? It's not just Crabs. Um, it's kind of like introducing all the dynamics that exist outside of the girl gang politics. Like, I, I was completely hooked on just like the infighting and the power yeah. struggle between Maggie and Lace. But the movie's not but just about that. Then yeah. you have like the school scenes where they're like interacting with the principal. Like they're this is definitely throwing a lot of different genres of of movie into one. And then yeah, the black characters show up at the end and the, there's like an African militia. Um and it's just like there there started to be so many different threads that I had trouble focusing on the central you know girl gang but it's 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 not just that it's more just this i don't have as much comfort and familiarity with this broad style of of um humor and satire or like even social commentary everything you're saying um resonates and 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 i can see it and especially the liberation aspect like she's wearing maggie like denim and she looks different than the the you know the leather uh gang sisters and it's just like the fact that she's gonna win out over the person who is pining over their terrible boyfriend that that sleeps that that basically rapes maggie and and then you know like keeps that from her and she's pregnant and um, Lace is pregnant, and when he has the most abhorrent 
a, a porn reaction to and, that. Of and course, that's like and almost like, like nightmarishly. It's a it's cinema. It's cinematically the reaction he has there. It's like the worst male reaction yeah. you could have. It's a you know it's a nightmare to me. And 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 so those kind of over the top moments. Yeah, I think to me just really work because it's just it reminds me I'm in a movie. I'm not in a, a serious drama. I'm not watching Schindler's yeah. List right now. I'm watching a movie that uh, it has other you know other fish to fry you know yeah and and i guess i'm mixing in things that are good with things that lost me and it's it's kind of just like there's something about this the tone of the crab scenes and the scenes with the principal that make me lose some weight to the scenes that are really like genuinely um impactful um so there those take me out of it and then i got to get back into the mindset of like, this is some pretty biting, you know, commentary or just, I think I'd get more entertainment in those down moments with the crowd, with the crowd energy. Whereas I was just kind of losing momentum during them. Yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah, I, 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 my, the only response I can give to that is don't write it off. Keep the, keep the Blu-ray. Um, Uh, give it another chance and especially if you know if you you keep watching movies from the 70s and stuff you might this one might grow on you and sometimes it's those movies that grow you know it's like if you listen to an album and it's not your favorite the first time you know it might be because it's not full of just poppy catchy stuff that wears off after you know that bubble gum will will have flavor in five minutes when you keep chewing it. Yeah. So even if you don't like the texture right away, um, that's all I'm saying. It's just I, I really I really admire it on a lot of different levels. But I think that a lot of people just responded well with just the dialogue. And I think that that's just a reason alone enough to admire it. Um, but then again, the Othello stuff and crabs it's not for you know and everybody likes shakespearean drama sure. you know it's rooted in that and um you know whether or not you think the second act holds better with crabs or not you know that's it will you know yeah but i just i would just say give it another give it another chance let it let, don't don't write it off completely um in terms of uh, uh it it working for you or not definitely know? not i think it's so it's so interesting like the specific versions of camp or tone in in like 80s horror movies that is my sweet spot versus 70s movies which might be more your sweet spot and i think we'll yeah. we'll the more we do this we'll uncover kind of like are just inherent biases or preferences like definitely i can watch critters just for the set decoration and the like you know the pop culture um like styles and and the the entire aesthetic and this is not like my aesthetic sweet spot in cinema right but i would that's just an opportunity for me to like yep. uh, expand my taste and and watch more and and see what sticks and what what doesn't. So I'm I'm excited to. I do want to go back to those um, Pam Greer movies and obviously Jackie Brown's probably the Tarantino movie I've seen the least a couple times. Right, and so it would be really fun to see you know those movies and then he was kind of reclaiming you know like that era and you know modernizing it for and then you know bringing her back as sure. a similar iconic like character in a more modern you know world so yep. that would be fascinating to see yep and jack hill is still alive he's 90 years old okay yeah so he's still <laughs> kicking and stuff um uh i just wanted to say also in addition like terminator something that stuck out was the year 1984 as being very significant for me as like a turning point in the history of cinema some people call um you know the um new hollywood period um as starting in, in you know 68 or so and going to 83 so that could be kind of what we're seeing is the the, the end of the new hollywood era but um in 1975 i feel like what we have here is just a, a very different thing where we have movies like rollerball coming out walter hill also has hard times hmm. uh, th- these movies are are presenting a much grittier kind of aesthetic and vibe uh that 
maybe existed a few years earlier, but without any of the hippie romanticism, without any of the experimentalism uh, that was really associated with some of the like auteur directors that were very anti-establishment. Right. Um, it really, it just, it, it seems like uh, what we're, we're seeing is kind of like uh, the birth of like a punk rock aesthetic in 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 these leather jackets you know rollerball has it and mad max is just right sure. around the corner so you know we're not in 77 yet we're in 75 so to me it was uh, it was just a really you know jaws was that year too which again like i said it was when we were talked about orca um it really changed how um, genre movies were not just B movies anymore, like the Roger Corman days in the fifties and sure. into the early sixties. Um, it really was that, you know, what do we have as a movies? We have these big blockbuster movies and they're monster movies, Jaws, you know, the creature movie as a serious thing. We have Roy Schneider leading, you know, and he's, he's in the French connection, you know, the, the yeah. we have these like super good actors craft are, and dialogue and yeah. Patience absolutely. of filmmaking. Yep. And certainly. so we have the tables turning and I think that switchblade sisters is a really interesting example of, uh, it being a really independent non-studio bound. And I think that that's another thing that just, I can just feel it every time I watch it is that, um, he, earned the ability and the freedom through working with AIP and Corman studio to be able to start his own things and take risks. And, um, they mentioned in the special features in the movie that he had just had, um, more time when he didn't have to deal with the big studios, when he's making it purely independent to devote to the movie itself. He's not having to spend 20% of his time dealing with the executives and talking to them. He just has that 20% time just to focus on making the movie as good of a movie as it can be. Right. So I just feel that he's just peaking. You know, he's just made, he's on a high after swinging cheerleaders. But I really feel like this movie is just oodles more creative than swinging cheerleaders. Um, and I like swinging cheerleaders a lot. Um, <laughs> yeah. so it's, it, to me, this, it's just dripping with that, um, just sort of deep, you know, unlike Cameron where he's coming off with the hot, hot rocks some with the, sort of in that debut energy I was talking about here, we have the maturity here showing where he's been making films now for over a decade on his own. And before that working with Corman and he's got that just craftsmanship that he's able to push the envelope. And I think that that sort of 1975 envelope, you know, it's, I, and we just watched rollerball recently, you know, it has a very similar sort of hard edge aesthetic. That's really trying to not be disco and it's not trying to be uh hippie anymore. You know, we have this street, energy that's coming yeah. um and i think it really evolves with mad max quickly and stuff but this is just it feels very raw um because it's filmed in 74 and coming out in 75 right yeah and i um i think a lot of those aspects like yeah c come through for sure even even you know in my experience there are just like it gets so close in like that final fight sequence. There's really yeah. beautiful um, yeah. choreo fight choreography there. And that's why I love the third act so much. Cause it just yeah. climaxes in this way that you're not expecting it. You know, when the black militants come out, you're just like, Whoa, where's yeah. this movie? What is this trying to say? It just adds another turn and complexity to the whole thing. Yep. And then in that last monologue with will be in, in the fight between lace and Maggie, um, so and the, and it's love the, the tension yeah. between the, the reveal of like yeah. lace is trying to hold on to, you know, her last gasp of power with, right. with her sisters and, most of them kind of know that she's lying, but right. they're still going, you know, like Donut is still going along with right. the ruse. And eventually she just gets caught in her lie, her lies and they fight to the death for, for supremacy yeah. of the, of the gang. And Maggie kind of has to win. I mean, there's no um, satisfaction that would come from Lace. I, you, Lace is a tragic figure. I yeah. mean, you feel bad for, 
absolutely what happened you know she it, did she lose her family do they address that like or she's just we just presume that she's basically had to raise herself or no i think at the beginning they have the scene with um her younger siblings and the mom with this tv getting re repossessed and stuff oh, that's actually her house i believe it is oh, at the beginning. i mean that makes way more sense because she's could be coming home i kind of thought she just randomly yeah. stumbled upon it and no, like yeah. i said i thought they were like this roaming band of like uh, good doers who are just like taking down the evil guys, but that's not, that turned out not to be the case. So that makes way more sense um, that she's just kind of like in an impoverished family, maybe single mom. And then like you can see the appeal to her, even if it's with a horrible dude of having a, a kid and, and getting, yep. you know, things right for her, for herself and her family. But it's so tragic because even if he hadn't reacted like that, you know, that's a doomed relationship. He's already, you know, raped her or her best friend at the time. So, yep. and I just <laughs> heavy can't, stuff. Yeah. I can't imagine seeing this in 1975 and having just seen a clockwork orange right. a few years earlier. And for this movie, I mean, from if I was to see this, I mean, I don't know what it's like in 1975, but for me seeing this just a few years after it makes a clockwork orange look super fake i mean listening to beethoven and you're in a street gang i mean obviously it's a sci-fi dystopian uh you know it's not supposed yeah. to be today or anything but these are like real street kids with super attitude you know spunk and stuff it just feels really authentic um and the scenes that they're at There's home no milk bars <laughs> yeah it just seems all uh you know and I, I, again i really think that that's jack hill just kind of shedding this hippie layer that that Kubrick, you know, is just embedded in. It's just a new generation coming coming alive in 1975. Yeah, it's it's interesting like the hyper or the more exaggerated um stylized elements of A Clockwork Orange do that's way harder to pull off. I mean, that movie is not campy because it takes itself like so seriously, yeah. but it, the situations are are patently absurd if you just like yeah. <laughs> describe them yeah using so, a lady's torso as a table it's, yeah yeah what are you doing yeah so that's like shocking in a whole different uh, that's more going for like shock value um so right. anyway yeah i mean i i think like having this conversation has been helpful for you know kind of uh, examining different aspects of it i definitely think like the 70s are a great place for me to dig into um more like i probably have exhausted the 80s as in terms of like heavy the quality the the new discoveries i'm going to get out of it i can just lean into the thing i already like or i can branch out <laughs> to a new decade and sure. see and have that discovery experience again yeah and I'm, I'm very passionate about the 70s and just um trying to give new life to some of these movies. And and that's what was exciting about Switchblade Sisters is when we posted the um, Arrow made it its own trailer of it and we posted that on Instagram, man, did we get a lot of support and reactions from it. So it, it really, to me, this movie has the potential to be as big as the Warriors and to be a, a, a cult classic officially 100%. And it's getting there. Um, and the fact that it's so available now. And so I'll just quickly sure. close with the... Uh, so unlike his previous film, Swinging Cheerleaders, Switchblade Sisters was not successful at the box office, which I think might have been a first for Jack Hill. He kind of prided himself as always having good return. Um, and it's interesting to me that my favorite or one of my favorites of his movies uh, wasn't his like box office hit. And so consequently, it really didn't get distributed much in the 80s. Um, there was like a weird VHS release that wasn't marketed to the right crowd and it just wasn't, you know, it was kind of like paused as like a lesbian movie and stuff. So it just, it totally just missed, um, the eighties. And then of course, Quentin Tarantino is famous for resurrecting it and trying to give it new life. Like he's done with many other movies, um, in the nineties. And he put out a, a better VHS, a DVD eventually, and a laser disc. 
And unfortunately, I've watched the Laserdisc, and it's rotted like all heck. Oh, no. Um, so, it, yeah, it's basically unwatchable, and I do not recommend the Laserdisc. But thankfully, Arrow in 2021, Arrow Video, the UK Blu-ray label, um, put out a, to me, which is now the definitive version to watch this movie, a really beautiful Blu-ray um, scan from the original negative um, and it has lots of interesting special features, a booklet. We just noticed the booklet. We were like, yep. whoa, we didn't There's even some read good essays book. in there. Yeah. So it's just, and, it, and it, the thing I love about it is it has the original um, cover uh, for, or the original poster, the original one sheet uh, for the, the Blu-ray release, which to me, I just, it's just a great shot. I just love the imagery um, on that with the chain and everything. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think that uh, you tried to see if it was streaming, right? And yeah, it didn't really look like there were too many useful options out there. You can do a digital rental, but for the price of of that, you might as well invest it in the in the Blu-ray. And that's that's just something we're both passionate about. I think I go, I got through, I went through a phase of laziness where I was just watching everything sure. streaming, and it was just one click away. But the act of the intentionality behind getting physical media and then just putting it in your Blu-ray player, it's its cool. It's the same reason people like records and, and yeah. VHS and anything else. And then you can like look at it when you're not watching it and have this artifact of the experience. So yeah, yeah I'd me, recommend that. Even though, <laughs> yeah, even if I didn't love the movie, um, I'm really glad I have the Blu-ray of it. Yeah, I, I highly recommend even if you can rent it streaming. If you can, uh, Movie Madness has uh, yeah. a Blu-ray for rent, um, and Blu-rays are really cheap at thrift stores if you don't have one. Uh, but um, yeah, just it, to me, it's just uh, it's more fun than watching it streaming. That's yep. that's all I have to say. I just I really enjoy the experience. Um, but if you can't um, get the Blu-ray and it's not available to you, rent it streaming. Watch yeah. this. Watch this movie. It, it's it to me. It, it really open my eyes to a whole different world of exploitation cinema uh, that uh, it, it has a lot to offer, I think. Agreed. Yep. Um, okay. This is the end of our recap episode for the June programming at Academy. Our next episode will be looking at the revival programming for August. So you should subscribe and then you'll know the week the day that, that arrives by searching academy revival podcast on spotify or apple or any other podcast platform thanks doorman this was fun thanks for listening everybody